0: Good morning and welcome to episode 538 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from Baseball Prospectus, presented by the Play Index at baseballreference.com. I am Ben Lindbergh of grantland.com, joined as always by Sam Miller of Baseball Prospectus. We have got a guest for weeks, I want to say months. Some of the backseat bookers in our audience have been looking ahead to this episode and tweeting and emailing and Facebook commenting to tell us that. We should get Nate for episode 538. It's a little gimmicky, a little bit on the nose, but we are happy to have the excuse to talk to someone whose work we admire. So we are pleased to be joined by the former managing partner of Baseball Prospectus, which is probably the first line on his resume, still right above projector of presidential elections and author of The Signal and the Noise and founder and fearless leader of 538, Nate Silver. Hi, Nate. Hey, how are you guys? Great. So I believe, if Wikipedia's information is correct, that today is the six-month anniversary of the launch of FiveThirtyEight's ESPN incarnation. So if I'm right yeah, about I, that, I, congratulations. Thanks,
1: my managing editor um, Mike Wilson pointed it out to the staff <clears throat> today. It's it's one of those things where it doesn't feel like six months; it feels like some days like six years, and some days like you know six days, basically. Uh, but it's been it's been a lot of fun. I hope that people see that. Or, you know, have a slightly larger repertoire in terms of what we can do now um, and get
0: kind of the thesis of the
1: site. But, um, but I appreciate it.
0: So that's kind of what I wanted to ask you because we talk a lot on the show and sabermetric-leaning people talk a lot about when... Certain statistics stabilize how big a sample you need of, of swing rate or strikeout rate or another stat before you can be confident that performance over that span is representative of his true talent. So what do you think is the period that it takes a website to stabilize? How, how long does it take <laughs> before a website's content or audience is representative of the vision that you had when you set out?
1: So Bill Simmons uh, told me before I actually decided to go with ESPN, he fought, fought for Grantland. It took, I'm not to any confidence here, but for about 12 to to 18 months for them to kind of feel like they fully hit their stride and then, and then still continuous improvements on top of that. It's only about three years old itself. Um, I think I was kind of naive about like, I think I said in some interview that, oh, we're we're like 75 or 80% ready, I think I said before we launched. Um, And what I meant by that was that we had hired like 75% of the staff that we had budgeted for. Um, But you don't really know very much about how to run a website or produce any type of product until you actually have customers. And when you're kind of drawing a lot of things on on a whiteboard and doing kind of all these J-school critiques, um, you're kind of dumb until you actually see what works and what doesn't. One thing we found, for example, is that readers really like when we go and actually do some, you know, quote unquote, traditional reporting, which is something BP has done more and more of, too, over the years. We sent, for example, a reporter to, to Ferguson, certainly not to report um, the front line of that story, but to talk about the economic context there and about how this had been actually a center for protests over minimum wages in the fast food industry and and it's a symbol of, of how a lot of suburban areas are working, so stories like that where it's done by a numerate reporter, but it's still traditional reporting or something people, people like
2: quite a bit. So when you're assessing uh, where you've come in six months, do you sort of see the, the topics that you guys approach? Getting narrower as you find uh, your real strengths and and, you know the topics that really get a particular response from your readers, or do you see it going exactly the opposite and getting broader and broader as you uh, try to kind of eventually take on the whole world? Yeah, the the
1: goal is to be is to be
2: pretty broad. Um, You know, we're kind of roughly broken
1: down. I'd say a third sports, a third um, um, politics and economics, and a third kind of lifestyle and science stories that can be highbrow or lowbrow or or whatever else um but you know the idea i think originally i mean look if you look at at the kind of stuff i wrote at vp back in the day um or a lot of stuff there now a tremendous number of pieces are things that are like okay here's some original data that i pulled and here's a regression analysis and here's a punchy conclusion about it or a cautious conclusion and i I totally love that stuff. That stuff is great, um, but we want to expand repertoire where that's not the only kind of thing that we do. So sometimes it does involve more traditional reporting. You know, also reporting on things that are just of interest to geeks. When we post stories on um, Scrabble, for example, or, or uh, burritos, or uh, or how to find the best airfare, things like that. People tend to gravitate toward toward those too. Um, we're uh, launching a film series, which will be modeled after 30 for 30. Um, the first movie comes out, I think, next month. Um, so finding different ways to reach people and also kind of, you know, figuring what are the things that you that you don't want to do. We, we don't do a lot of aggregation. I mean, I don't have like a huge moral problem with it or anything, but um, but we want to be a place where we're kind of doing more of the legwork ourselves, and either taking an original research finding or doing original reporting. Um, we, you know, definitely shy away from fund-a-piece stuff, and believe me, there are a lot of times when I would love if something happens and you don't have the time to be that thorough. I'd love to just kind of spit out my first thoughts in 500 words, um, but that's kind of not what we're about. So you know, we try not to absolutely prohibit everything. You don't want to let the philosophy of the site get in the way of itself. Um, but you know, mostly we feel like what we do is is in some sense kind of hyper traditional that we believe in in doing original work ourselves. Um, we believe that uh, that kind of the world's a complicated place, and you want to, to trust the reader to be able to untangle things for themselves. It doesn't mean you're just kind of presenting your, your notes in an unedited way. Um, but there are a lot of times when we write articles are saying, hey, actually, this thing's a little bit more complicated than people are saying. Um, and, you know, that's a little different, I guess, than than maybe some trends now where it's kind of like, oh, here's just the kind of summary, the bullet-pointed version. Um, you know, we want to kind of lower the fourth wall between us and our readers and, and trust that our readers are really smart and, and have more detail about it than less. And sometimes it's in the footnotes or in offshoots to things that we do. But a big kind of premise around here is is show your work. You know, I think trust in journalism ultimately should come from verifiability. And that can be by being clear about your methods and, and your sources. It can come sometimes by, by making predictions. It's one type of verification. Sometimes by um, publishing data or, or code, we do that not with every story, certainly, but, but fairly often on, on GitHub and stuff. Um, so people can kind of see not just what you concluded, but walk with you on why you're there and you know, frankly what the problems might be
0: with your approach. So when the subject matter is as diversified as it is, and there are five main subject areas on the homepage, but one of them is life, which encompasses (laughs) everything. So do you count on a core audience coming back every day to the degree that you would, say, At BP, where there are subscribers who will show up every day because they know that there will be baseball content, or maybe at the old 538 where there was a higher percentage of politics coverage, people would come for that. It was the destination for that. Do you get more hop-ons now, to to borrow an Arrested Development term, or are there still kind of the core people who come to 538 every day just knowing that there will be something there that appeals to them?
1: So, you know, we get... um, get stats from different platforms on it kind of breaks it down into new readers, recurring readers, and loyal readers. And I think on an average day it's like 40, 40, 30 between those categories. Um, I don't know what everyone else's traffic is. Um, I think that's on the side of having somewhat more loyal readers, probably not um, quite as much as, as BT has or something. Um, but what we'd like to do is make sure that you know when people click on the site at random they'll see a couple of things that will interest them and obviously we go very deep into some subjects like the midterm elections and and the world cup and so forth um but you know we're also of the view that uh everyone is kind of a grazer now in terms of of how um how they consume content and and people spend you know maybe a couple minutes on on every site from buzzfeed to the new york times right um and so and so we're not under the illusion i hope that we're the only place people are looking for for content um and some of that means if we don't think we can cover something well then we you know maybe sort of take a pass on it like we would love to have in retrospect done more with the scottish referendum for example um but it's a hard thing to model there's not a lot of history you can compare it to um and you know we didn't want to put something together that was kind of half ass uh uh uh, if we couldn't cover it in the right way. So we had a couple of contextual stories, but, but those decisions matter matter a lot. But, you know, overall traffic is like really substantially like an order of magnitude or so higher than it was when you're just a politics site. So I hope that we're kind of keeping, um, keeping the politics readers and also kind of having people who like the philosophy of the site or just, you know, if you read one article at 538 and you enjoy it and you never come back again, I'm still happy to have you as a, as a customer, so to speak.
2: So uh, your uh, baseball analysis, if I can turn it to your baseball analysis for a minute, uh, your baseball analysis is really from uh, a particular generation where there was a lot of interest, a sort of huge, almost exponential growth in both awareness and information in the sport. Uh, But just before the kind of super micro pitch FX stuff took over and it became... Uh, you know, a a big industry of heat maps and and such. Um, so, do you uh, feel like there is a kind of best era to have been a sabermetric writer of you know the between the eighties, the nineties, maybe the the early mid two thousands, now and and the future? Is there one that you think is kind of the richest vein for research? I mean, I think now is my default <laughs>
1: instinctive answer, right? Um, you know, when I kind of moved on from BP in like 2008, it wasn't quite a point of of stagnation, but it kind of felt like like you know the box score stats had been exhausted. There were some good prediction systems out there based on those. There were Voris and the Kraken's findings, um, and you were starting to have next gen stats, but there wasn't kind of enough history to really do cool things with them. But I'm always like super impressed whenever I read just how advanced this stuff is with respect to measuring catcher framing or, or, or defense or, you know, approaches to uh, the clubhouse chemistry or whatnot, right? I mean, it it's, seems really interesting to me. Um, it also makes it competitive. We probably have, um, have had, in some ways, we have Jonah Kerrigan and stuff for us, Neil Payne and Ben Morris, but, and freelancers, but in some ways baseball is a little tougher because competition's really good, right? Um, whereas in, in the NFL or, or the NBA, to a lesser extent, you can do something pretty good that kind of works in a daily news cycle and it's still somewhat novel, but boy, the, the bar is really high in baseball, I have to say.
2: Does your brain still kind of generate uh, research ideas that maybe you'll never follow up on or maybe that you'll uh, you know, sort of poke around on the side but never publish? Do you have a, like a desk drawer filled with half-done studies that are just kind of a hobby now?
1: Yeah, definitely, Um, whether it's sports or elections or whatever else. Because for me, um, the fun part is the moment of of discovery, when you ask a question and and say, hey, let me go and grab some data and test this. And then sometimes it becomes becomes tedious to write up the finding if it's no longer exciting for you. So, yeah, there's lots and lots of spreadsheets or half-written memos um, that I've never turned in anything on, on the site, um, but I guess it's kind of a hazard of, of the job. I mean, this is basically all about kind of asking good questions and being curious about about the world. Um, and so, yeah, a, a symptom of that is that um, sometimes there are more ideas, both for me and for the rest of the group, than we have time to really execute on every day.
2: Is there is there any sort of falsehood that you see repeated over and over in you know baseball writing right now where you have a spreadsheet that would contradicted and you (laughs) (laughs) sort of think, oh, there they go again, getting it all wrong. Only I know, only I know the truth. (laughs) I mean, I think there
1: is maybe relatively more room for improvement on covering um, sports finances. Like one thing I found, for example, is that when a team either signs a marquee free agent or loses one, it seems to have some effect on on ticket sales, controlling for a one-loss record and making the playoffs. And so forth. Um, so you know, kind of that paradigm gets a little complicated. Where you're thinking about, um, oh, do we have a more marketable player, <laughs> for example, if the Red Sox resign to a 35-year-old veteran who's popular to contact that War says it's a terrible idea, but he still gets people in the ballpark and stuff like that. Is maybe that you know how do you approach those types of questions? So the sports finance stuff is something we try and do. We try and do more of. Um, but there's not a whole ton of of really super exciting <laughs> findings, I guess, on the, on the baseball side, um, maybe more on the, on the election side. I've been sitting on this thing for a long time that talks about um, which party really has an advantage in the Electoral College and how does that rate uh, relate to turnout. And it looks to me like uh, the fact that Obama swept all these swing states in 2012 had more to do with his turnout advantage than anything inherent in the Electoral College itself. So that's an interesting thing that likely take 4,000 words to to write about. I'll probably do it at at some point. Um, But um, part of it too is that because baseball season and election season kind of coincide, um, it's, you know, I, you know, frankly, I probably watch more basketball and football than I do baseball right now, because then it's kind of a slow period for elections and baseball, like, you know, they, the climax of season is right when I basically am sleeping two hours a night.
0: What is your perception of the, the broadcast bubble, if that's what you see it as, teams getting incredibly wealthy on these massive local deals and national deals? Bubbles are something that you wrote about in your book, so I'm curious if you see this going the same way. Obviously, it has broader implications than just baseball, but it has become a, a major issue in baseball specifically.
1: Yeah, to me, I mean, anytime you see the price of any commodity increase <laughs>
0: really fast, a lot
1: faster than its baseline rate, then you should be suspicious. Um, doesn't mean it's always a bubble, but the probability is, is fairly high, I suppose. I think one thing driving this, too, um, is that the rise in value, which has been rapid in sports franchises, seems to track really well with the rise of the global uh, like 0.001%. Because if you literally now have to be a billionaire to buy a sports franchise, then there's much more of a market for it when you have more billionaires, and it's almost like the high-end art market or something where um, where only a certain type of people have access to it, and that's part of what makes it valuable is that you can kind of pass on this commodity to other very wealthy people and make a bet on what long-term trends in wealth look like. Um, but, you know, I would think there, I don't know, you know, I think there might be a correction at some point in franchise value. I mean, the Clippers sold for what was a $2 billion dollars when Forbes which you know the rest of their problems, so it was maybe maybe half that or something for a profoundly <laughs> troubled franchise. So, um, so yeah I think there could be a, a correction there. I get worried whenever you see people who are making financial predictions and say well we're going to grow at, at inflation plus 3% continuously. You know I don't know if that's necessarily going to be the case.
2: I want to ask you about war because every person who has a byline is going to be writing something this year about what they think about war um, and it seems like the general feeling in most of these columns is that uh, war is is yeah probably maybe the best um, you know the best uh, stat that you can get the most all inclusive stat there's nothing exactly wrong about it but that there's too much confidence in it that it's leaned on too heavily that there are uh, clashes in the data that make it uh, unreliable and creates only the illusion of reliability. Do you have a sort of feeling about the way that? Uh, war has developed into the uh, the number one stat in the last you know five ten years and how it's applied and how it's used.
1: I mean, it's it's not like war is just something people pick out of a, a grab bag. It is supposed to be the summary stat <laughs> to the extent you can you can have one. I mean, you know, a lot of this comes down to um, where do you need precision and maybe you can't have a certain amount of precision, right? But if if you know if you write a piece saying, "Oh, this guy was," half a win better than this other guy, and then come to some really profound conclusion based on that, then then you probably have to be pretty careful about that. But as a general guide, I think it does it does totally fine. Um, you know, I think to have different versions of it out there is actually helpful. Um, and by the way, the ones in baseball, I mean, the, the differences aren't nearly as profound as in, in the NBA, where depending on what system you use, what type of data it uses, you have really profound differences of opinion about um, whether players are, are even above average or really poor or really good. Um, so baseball I think is fortunate in that sense as compared to, to football, you know, as compared to, to hockey. I hope hockey will get better data, but you know, the stuff they're doing is like super primitive for the most part right now. Um, so I, there's a little bit of kind of angels dancing on pinhead debates about about war. It's a pretty good it's a pretty
0: good system. This is about the time of year when Sam and I often start talking about projecting playoff success and the difficulty or impossibility of doing that. And I know that Jonah and Neil wrote about that yesterday, and that was interesting. And and you, of course, created the secret sauce, which was subsequently discontinued at BP, and I <laughs> I don't know how you felt about that, whether you felt that that was premature or not, but do you think there is still something in that approach of trying to do a regression that will give you a secret to playoff success, or is it not really a pursuit that we should be going after anymore?
1: You know, as I've kind of uh, evolved and done more things in different ways, I, I tend to be more suspicious of kind of data mining exercises of that type where like oh let's go test out 30 things and see which ones have some significance value because you're going to have you know if you test out 50 variables then then two or three of them are going to come up positive just as a matter of of chance right so you have to be careful about that i thought i thought the insightful thing and in kind of the book chapter i wrote about that is that you know things are slightly different when you're playing in the playoffs and that number one you're playing against other very good teams and there's some evidence that um, that when you're playing against the very good teams in the regular season also that that um, it tilts things slightly to pitching and defense obviously you have a more top heavy pitching staff in the playoffs and that can matter some you know rest um, players are better rested generally speaking but also fatigued in other cases um, so I think that's worth talking about but a lot of these things are yeah it might make a one percent difference here and there, but there's probably not any, any secret sauce, per se.
2: The, the, the sort of conventional wisdom, or I guess the, the lore around baseball, is that if you have a, an ace, or maybe even a couple of aces, that that makes you extra dangerous in the postseason. And it has kind of been an ongoing mystery of this podcast that Ben and I can't quite figure out why. There doesn't actually seem to be any correlation between the strength of your ace and how well you do in the postseason. It's not actually a, a, a particularly beneficial variable. And we've had many different hypotheses come up. Uh, Do you have a hypothesis for why two teams uh, that are essentially equal, but one has a super ace that can pitch a disproportionate number of innings in the postseason uh, compared to the regular season, doesn't actually uh, have a better chance than the team with the lesser ace?
1: I mean, you know, there are such things as as false negatives in the data, too. You would think that as pitching staffs get, get compressed, that it's kind of inevitable that a team that can start a uh, number one starter three times in a series or twice at least is going to benefit from that to, to some degree. Um, but yeah, I don't know. I guess it'd be suspicious if you didn't find that, if you had an infinitely large sample of, of data, but, but who knows? I mean, it probably depends on how you define number one starters to one theory I have, by the way, or at least curiosity I have that I haven't done enough work on myself is, is how much of the resurgence in pitching has to do with the fact that we now understand pitching stats, a lot better. Maybe you guys know the research on it. I'm sure you do. But you know, if teams are going by fifth, basically instead of ERA or wins, um, and they kind of make those decisions correctly and better predict who's going to be good, how much of a league-wide improvement in the ERA would that lead to? Maybe not a ton, but probably, probably something at the at the margin. And also, people figuring out, how to use their their um, relief pitchers really effectively. Maybe which guys should be relievers and starters. That seems to play some role.
0: Do you feel, you, you mentioned being aware of the research and how hard it can be to keep track of that now that there are so many outlets doing this sort of work. Do you feel that, you know, when 538 does a study or, or when some other major media site does a study, is there a responsibility to sort of scour the Internet to see whether anyone has ever done any work on this subject and whether it's been done before so that you can cite and link to that work? Or is there value to just sort of doing it originally and redoing it and maybe doing it in a different way and bringing it to a bigger audience and not necessarily exhausting all the resources that you could to find out whether something has been done in that area already?
1: It's a great question. And there are kind of two parts to it, one of which is kind of a, maybe a journalistic ethics thing and one of which is a,
0: a research question. Um,
1: in general, it's, it's good when you have people Approaching the same question in largely the same way or somewhat the same way, but you have better replicability if you do that, and that's a that's a good thing, you know. And people have found that in academic contexts, replication rates are are quite low. If people try and recreate the same study in medicine, for example, it fails to find a positive result a lot of the time. Sports data tends to be a little bit more robust than that, um, but but that's an important thing to do. There's also the question of um, you know, we've written things, and uh, and people write us later and said, boy, I did something pretty similar here um, in 2011, and you didn't cite me, right? And we're like, well, if the Internet's a big place. Um, you know, we're sorry about that. We'll try and drop in a link if we can. And about as often, we've seen someone say, um, hey, boy, you know, this is a really new and novel analysis that we've done, and isn't this cool? And we said, actually, we did that. In 2011, why didn't you cite us, right? Um, and that's super annoying to be on the receiving end of that. Um, but I guess I'd say, you know, I don't have any commandments that you have to do a, a literature search um, before you start writing about something. If you are aware of something and you don't mention it, then I think that's a little bit misleading. Um, but to some extent, it's like I don't know. I like tackling topics. Uh, myself and and um, if you have a really surprising finding, that's when you might go more and say, "Hey, um, what's the previous research look like on this?" And if it's different, does that mean I did something wrong? They did something wrong? The data is just really noisy, or or whatever else.
2: So sort of along those lines, uh, last December Andrew Ku wrote a piece for us at Baseball Prospectus about the A's and how they had seemed to have found uh, sort of an inefficiency in uh, signing flyball hitters had a kind of a persistent platoon advantage against ground ball pitchers. And this seemed to be like a, a real valuable thing that they had discovered. And everybody celebrated this article. It was interesting. It was a great piece. And a few weeks later, randomly, I was reading through your uh, old pieces. And I found in 2003 that you had kind of written in a theoretical way, almost this exact same thing. You and and Gary mm-hmm. Huckabay had written a a piece that was exactly about the platoon advantage that flyball hitters have over crown ball pitchers. And uh, it kind of blew my mind. And it's what really blew my mind though is that for ten years or almost ten years, the idea had gotten really no traction. It had remained kind of underutilized, not talked about. Do you do you feel like there are a like a in your heart, do you feel like there are a bunch of pieces that you wrote long ago that that never quite got traction, and would be just as timely and just as interesting today, and maybe just as useful for a team or for a writer to know about today as as back then. Well, I think about uh,
1: Bill James. <laughs> he's doing this a lot longer than any of us, and how contemporary this stuff still feels. Um, if you read stuff from from the 1980s or really almost anything that that he's done, um, yeah, people kind of only hold so many ideas in their head at. at at one time, um, and kind of executing on strategies is a lot different than um, researching them. So it wouldn't surprise me if there are a lot of kind of nuggets buried in in different things. You know, I know with uh, like building independent pitching, I, you know, I, I would guess you could probably find some predecessors to that if you if you dug back far enough. But it's also a matter of being skilled, I guess, at presenting things and saying, hey, this idea is actually kind of a big deal, and here's what the impact might be. Um, so it wouldn't surprise me at all if if um (laughs) if people just said oh we're not going to do any new work for for a year we can go and reread things that we did before and oh yeah you could probably you'd probably do almost as well in in the short run and then the research well would would dry up um, and you'd have to go find some some new
0: things so lastly i i've heard legendary tales about the last time that you ran pakoda which i believe was after you had already been pulled in many other directions and I was an intern at the time, I think, and I remember hearing about epic three-day straight staying up playing Guitar Hero and eating Chinese food to get the projections out <laughs> by the time the book was due. It doesn't sound like the sort of thing that you would ever want to return to, but if you were ever to return to baseball projecting in some form, are there data sources that have become available since since you left BP, since you handed over Pakoda that you would now be interested in incorporating into the system? Are there analytical techniques that you have picked up in your other work in other fields that you would try to apply to baseball? What would a a 2014 Nate Silver version of Pakoda look like?
1: Yeah, I mean, I, I think I would definitely want to make a lot of use of next-generation stats. And, and to be honest, I'm not completely sure about what everyone else is doing. I know, like, you know, I think Steamer, for example, maybe uses – um, data about fastball velocity and so mm-hmm. forth that I think would be would be very useful. But, um, but yeah, one of the things about TACOTA was that it was all built based on historical compare- and comparisons, excuse me, going back to World War II. So it's kind of like if any stats didn't exist as of 1946, um, it didn't really use them. And I think now that's probably the wrong course of action, um, that there's so much information contained in this new data that we didn't have before and now we have enough years um, where the data has been collected where you can go back and, uh, and do some modeling and, and back-testing. Back-testing not always a perfect thing, but, um, but you'd rather do it than just guess at how important things are. So, yeah, it'd probably be built fairly profoundly from, from scratch, I would think. The other thing, too, is that in Dakota, you know, everything was kind of a giant Excel program, and, like, it was kind of loose bits of static code that I had to recreate every year. So just kind of realizing that um, you know making an upfront investment in terms of, of coding things properly, <laughs> building an actual program instead of doing things haphazardly saves a lot of time, a lot of time over the long run. And in a given year, you might say, well, i can kind of hack this together and it will save me um, two days. that means kind of two works of weeks of misery every year when you're recreating your steps from before. And also, you know, if you're doing a lot of things by hand, then there can be errors introduced in, in different ways. And Dakota was kind of like a, a, um, one of those serial Christmas tree light strings where if you're like, oh, shit, I went and, and miscalculated the park factors, well, it's one of the first steps, and you have to go back and redo everything. If I actually had a proper program like I do now for our election stuff, then that fix can be made in, in five minutes.
0: Mm-hmm. All right. Well, thank you for coming on and making a – a podcast return to baseball prospectus and doing our gimmicky branding five thirty eight tie-in episode. It was good talking to you. Awesome. Thank you guys. All right, that is it for this week. You can find us on Facebook at Facebook.com slash groups slash effectively wild. You can send us emails for next week's listener email show at podcast at baseballprospectus.com. You can rate and review and subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. And you can support our sponsor by going to BaseballReference.com, subscribing to the Play Index using the coupon code BP, and get the discounted price of $30 on a one-year subscription. Thanks for listening. Have a wonderful weekend. We will be back on Monday.